we're talking about union suits again. I could talk about union suits. I could do a four-hour podcast about union suits and not learn a thing about union suits. Just talk about <laughs> union suits. Like, I don't even know why they're called union suits. I I like I, unions. That's that's uh, that's a big plus in my opinion. But I feel like the union suit predates a union. Like I assume they were wearing union suits in like 1840. There were unions in 1840, weren't there? I mean, kind of. But doesn't Upton Sinclair really kickstart that whole thing? Like, isn't, that like, isn't that like the workers' rights? Like, like I feel like we're like. I think they started in like the 1880s. Am I wrong to think that the union suits a, an older garment than that? Like, I I assume the Donner Party was like that was like the last layer of wrapping. And this is <laughs> last layer of wrapping, like they're uh, undoing takeout. I don't know. I mean, they, they ate each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gotta get these staples off this paper bag, and then there's a plastic bag, and then there's the little cardboard thing. And then there's a union suit. Here's the paper inside the tinfoil. You're like, I'm almost at the sandwich, but there's this paper that is stuck to the cheese. I'm having some problems with this one. I might go to another vendor because uh, it's like I'm too tall for it and it shrunk in the wash. Like the the second wash, it shrunk more than I expected it to. So it's like pulling down on my shoulders and pulling up at the same time when I'm standing. And it's very unpleasant. I was wondering which part of you is taking the brunt of that shrinkage. It's just not great in either direction. Can't believe uh, you wear a union suit. Uh, I also got some uh, some new Filson like merino line gloves that my uh, my mommy got me for Christmas, and those kept my hands really warm for when I went to Costco this morning or slash afternoon. Do you wear anything besides the union suit? No, you just go union suit, gloves, boots. Yeah, all in a mask. Streamlined, kept it streamlined. In a mask. You're not a monster. I'm not a monster. You're not a monster. Yeah, but otherwise, it's just. I mean, I just, I figure you keep it pretty, you know, pretty Spartan. Mm-hmm. You just go like L.L. Bean duck boot, union suit, mask, Filson gloves, beanie. Did you, I feel like this is like at the end we need to include that you also like carried everything home in a bindle. Mm-hmm. Well, in the back of my uh, 2000 Subaru Outback. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty close. That's the, the modern day bindle. Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. My name is David Chuck. I'm Reed Nelson. And we're here to talk about denim history. We just keep doing it. We, we don't stop doing it. It's a lot of history. If you remember, um, we won World War II. Just going to put that out there. Is, there. is there debate on that one? I'm sure someone will get pedantic with you and challenge, like, uh, challenge that opinion. Like, well, if you actually think about it, the Swiss won World War II without firing a single shot. Besides, like, that hot take, though, I I guess I am curious who's out there booming with, like, the hot take being, like, you know, the Axis powers were Uh actually victorious. One Japanese guy on an island that uh, he actually, who still thinks the war's going on. But that was where we left off. The, The U.S. government had deployed denim at an unprecedented scale in the fight against global fascism. And it worked. Millions of people wore denim, both on the battlefield and back home in wartime production. And yeah, eventually we won. Uh, On May 8th, 1945, the Allies declared victory in Europe. And on August 14th of that same year, victory in Japan. Note here, if I kind of want to get a these pants destroy fascism patch across the butt of my jeans, you know, like juicy. 
Is that a Woody Guthrie reference? Yeah, Woody Guthrie. You know, the this machine destroys fascism on guitar. Just these pants destroy fascism on on jeans. Just go. For, I like that full juicy. You should get the font though. I think be in very small uh, print. Uh, the post-war world, however, would look very different than the one that preceded it. For good and for bad, both the United States and their our denim fabric were about to go on a yet unending run near total global domination. We went over this in much greater detail in our Made in USA episode, but the biggest leg up the U.S. had over the rest of the world post-World War II was that domestically we barely got scratched. Nearly every other industrialized countries and a few not industrialized ones were completely decimated by the war. That we've got China, Japan, Russia, Germany, Italy, France, the UK, et cetera, et cetera, were all in shambles from six years of bombings and occupation. And just how the US was able to sell them the bombs and war machinery to blow up their countries, we were also happy to sell the materials to patch them back up. Which brings us to the Marshall Plan. Uh, in Europe and the reconstruction of Japan made for a big manufacturing boons in the U.S. even after the wartime economy slowed down, which equated to like around $129 billion in 2020 money, or 2021 money, um, spent in Europe and $24 billion spent in Japan. Or roughly one Jeff Bezos. Roughly one Bezos uh, spent to rebuild Europe. And that, that's and what Japan. you could do back then. And Japan, together. He could do both. But this uh, post-war spending set up a new world order where the U.S. wielded a huge amount of soft power compared to their global standing before the war. Just imagine you're in a neighborhood and everyone's house burns down except for yours, but you have an entire shed full of tools and construction materials, and you're more than happy to rebuild everything. You want everybody to get back on their feet, but you're going to have some influence in how things are going to be rebuilt. And somewhere down the line, you might need to call in a favor or two. Things that, uh, like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Can I park my extra car in your driveway? Can I put an Air Force base in your backyard for the next 75 years? Um, these are things that they're probably not going to say no to. But uh, just how does this relate to genes? Two things. With all the collapse of infrastructure, this also meant the collapse of clothing production. So the U.S. started to export clothing to these new markets all over the world, including denim, because they had nothing else to you know, make clothes out of at the time immediately following the war. So if you recall the interview we did with uh, Rudy Carr, Swiss jeans freak, uh, the first pair of jeans he ever received was as a kid in Switzerland in a donation charity parcel from the U.S., him and his brothers, he said, fought over the pair of 501s that they got uh, used in a big pack of clothing that was sent to their family. And there were thousands, if not millions, of other people like him that got their first exposure to denim via American rebuilding efforts. And further exercising American soft power, because now the way that we dress is also being exported and normalized around the world. Second, there were now thousands and thousands of Americans stationed throughout the world like never before. Post-war occupation of uh, Germany, Japan, and Italy basically never ended. We still have a very large military presence in all of them. Having an occupying force forces a cultural conversation where one might not have existed beforehand. The Japanese obsession with American denim supposedly began with a fascination of American occupying GIs after the war. That uh, jeans were called G-pans because of their association with American GIs. That it was a shortening of GI pants. Uh, if that makes sense. 
Are they still called G-pins? I do not know. You know, I took like half a semester of Japanese and we didn't get to denim, which like would have helped me in my uh, day-to-day life a lot more than, you know, learning how to say like this meat is tasty. Yeah, I feel like you should have hung in for the denim section. <laughs> yeah, but now I can say, uh, uh, oh, what is it? Niku oishi desu ne? What did you just say? This meat is tasty, is it not? Oh, that was very literal. That's what you can say. Is that just what stuck with you, or is that what the teacher decided was the most important phrase in the language? That's what stuck with me. I can also say my name's David, like Watashi wa David des, or Watashi wa Amekanji des, like I'm American. This is probably a horrible pronunciation because I haven't thought about this in like five years. I took um, Latin as a kid, and for whatever reason, I just have like a couple phrases still down. Like yeah. Paola Spunpuela Romana. Paola's a Roman girl. It was the first sentence of the book we read. <laughs> like, read. Don't know why I remember that, but I will not forget. Like, I'm going to be like, it's my rosebud. I'm going to be like dying on a deathbed, just being like Paola Spunpuela Romana. <laughs> Who is Paola? It's just people are like, why is She's he talking a Roman about girl. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So all these uh, G-pans and uh, other things like uh, charity parcels would plant the seed for future denim obsession the world over, but it would not compare to what was brewing back home in the States, which we will get into right after this quick break. Attention blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low heddles price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. And we're back. And just as World War II upset the global world order, we do a voice effect there, please, as well. Uh, it upset the domestic one as well. 16 million Americans served in the war, of which 400,000 were killed, 670,000 were injured, and 130,000 of them were prisoners of war. A lot of them were subjected to some fairly horrifying stuff, and this was long before post-traumatic stress disorder was accepted as a legitimate condition. But, um, I'm sure you've heard about that George Carlin routine where he goes about like shell shock to battle fatigue. Yeah. To uh, PTSD, you just keep getting more uh, syllables. But when the war was over, the government did their best with the GI Bill and other reintegration programs to shunt people into respectable peacetime careers. But uh, many of these people had a hard time reintegrating back into society, or they just didn't want to in general. And this was also the dawn of the nuclear family and the splintering of multi-generational households, because America was becoming a rich country and people had the resources to move out on their own earlier in life. Now, if you want to get into a little bit of a tangent on the Kinsey Report here, I, I'd be happy to do so. Let's just go with the Kinsey Report. Oh, a lot of other people didn't want to give up the camaraderie that they gained while serving abroad, and a lot more still were forced into the closet after having homosexual experiences abroad. Kind of a bomb to drop there, but uh, this was the time that the Kinsey Report on sexual behavior in the human male found that nearly one out of three of its interviewees has had a homosexual experience with nearly half of men experiencing some attraction to both genders. And this is obviously outdated with binary in mind. But uh, yeah, that was pretty groundbreaking stuff at the time with uh, 
former uh, alumnus of my uh, college, Alfred Kenzie. Oh, that was that's. I mean, non-binary thing notwithstanding, that's a pretty uh, pretty progressive report to commission, right? Or was it for bad reasons? I don't know much about the Kenzie report. Uh, it wasn't so much for bad reasons, like that he did it. He was just sort of, you know, trying to shake a lot of taboos on American sexuality. But um, I think a lot of people used it as scare tactics of being like, oh, the gays are everywhere. We've got to be afraid of the gays and, you know, uh, uh, homophobic panic. But uh, and that was part of the reason why they wanted people to, like, not have as much um, male groupings, you know, of uh, this is a thing that we're going to get into in like, you know, denim and motorcycle clubs. But how those were seen as transgressive, not just because of like the actions that they did, but to just have guys together, like for leisure purposes in general. Kind of like how in Salt Lake City, Utah, they didn't allow houses of more than three women to live together until like the late 70s because they considered them houses of prostitution. That's still in Colorado. They have that in Denver, but I think it's like five or six women. It was like three unrelated. So you could have like five sisters, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a, uh, I I don't want to go there with that, that brothel joke, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, uh, very backwards laws. But what do lonely, disaffected and occasionally closeted men do? What do they do? They wear jeans. I mean, I'm sure they do lots of other things, but they also wore jeans. It's a weird way to phrase that, but I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this comes in a variety of flavors that we've got the Beat Generation, a.k.a. Beatniks, which was a whole school of postmodern writers and artists that questioned traditional American values in the post-war era. Um, things like you know economic materialism, Western religion, sexual repression, and traditional narrative structure in the uh, the writing and the poetry that they produced. Oh, this would include uh, people like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Ken Kesey, William S. Burroughs, Amiri Bakar, excuse me, Amiri Baraka. Um, and we've got a, a section here from uh, Allen Ginsberg reading at the Albert Hall. Um, that we're going to queue up just to give you a sense of what this kind of poetry and what this uh, style was like. Oh, thin Bengali sadhus adoring Kali mother hung with nightmare skulls. Oh, myself under your pounding feet. Yes, I am that worm soul. Under the heel of the demons, I am that man trembling to die in vomit and trance in bamboo eternities, belly ripped open by red hands of courteous Chinaman kids. Come sweetly now back to myself as I was. So think about that going on at the same time as Leave it to Beaver. This is roughly equivalent time periods and uh, understand how transgressive and weird and threatening to uh, middle-class American values this was at the time. Yeah, like the only one that could have probably been on Leave it to Beaver was Michael McClure, but he just looked, he just looked nice. Mm-hmm. 
you just put on a nice sweater, you can go on that TV show. Yeah, you and know. Talk about uh, South Asian mysticism and uh, sex rights. Specifically, maybe maybe if you write something, cut it up and paste it back together in a different yeah. order. Mm-hmm. Fun fact about Allen Ginsberg is a professor of mine in college claimed to have slept with him while he was in college. And I believe him. But uh, all these beats, they in many cases wore denim and workwear, as at the time it was a rejection of materialism. That jeans and workwear were still anti-fashion back then. And this would be sort of like wearing welding clothing casually today. And uh, Kerouac specifically is probably the one that is most credited with uh, creating beatnik style and like beat generation style that GQ refers to Kerouac as quote, the originator of blue collar cool and claimed he was one of the first rejecting the notion that class was synonymous with value. So that you don't have to wear like a top hat and tails in order to be stylish or to be the height of, uh, you know, dressing well. A lot of these guys found a kinship among the working class look of like sweatshirts, chambray and flannel work shirts, work boots, jeans, plain white tees. Uh, Got a quote from the well, I, don't, I can't think of an adjective for Bruce Boyer. What's a good adjective for Bruce Boyer? The intonable, the everlasting, the uh, always relevant. Eternal. Seminal. The eternal Bruce Boyer. I like that. Quote from the eternal Bruce Boyer. That hip was the youthful point of view that emerged after World War II as a counterweight to both the fear and conformity of a bleak past and a dubious future. Prol clothes and a laid-back demeanor formed its aesthetic correlative. The angry young rebels of the 1950s were the precursors of the new way fashion would work, not from the top of the social ladder down, but from the bottom up. Street clothes and work clothes, the gear of cowboys and XGIs, industrial laborers, the zoot suits of the jazz musicians that Mr. Kerouac adored, and farmhands would enter the realm of style, and it was the style of the underclass hero, the prole rebel. So this is basically heddles, like in a quote, uh, if you want to talk about it. Like I, I gotta think of like a, a more uh, succinct description of like that transition of style going from something that uh, was somewhat superfluous and more class oriented to something that looked cool based on its function and the character representation that it had. Sort of like when we talked about cowboys earlier. Yeah, they messed around and wrote our mission statement, huh? <laughs> yeah, Bruce Boyer did at least. Shouts Bruce Boyer. Uh, this was very threatening to bu- traditional buttoned-up Americans, as the Beats were experimenting with psychedelic sexual freedom and questioning religion. Um, and was you know it was like Satanic Panic, but uh, thirty years before that. Another side to this that you know sort of the the pincer attack of uh, denim being transgressive was the motorcycle clubs. I just like that they went from weed to jeans to Satan in America. Like, and now we're at like furniture stores. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where the panic like arc has gone. Wait, what's the panic in furniture stores? Oh, I'm you, in you, one right now. Am I, am I safe? Yeah, no, you guys, Wayfair, you know about you. Oh, heard right, right, you right. Know, yeah. Wayfair. Like, I feel like there's a big Wayfair panic. I'm not going to disparage their name. I was looking for, I was looking for furniture on their site today. They have cool okay. hang bars. If you had said online furniture stores, I, I would have followed you there. I guess, yeah, I was, no, I mean, we could even get more specific. Like DTC online com- furniture stores is now like the new jeans. Yeah. So uh, when we're talking about it being uh, socially unacceptable for men to hang out together, like recreationally, um, not procreationally, 
that one of the things that they did was uh, a lot of World War II vets remained in touch with each other um, by forming motorcycle clubs where they went around and they uh, rode bikes together. And many also found that their clothing that they wore to, they wore to war was also well suited to riding motorcycles. That you know, leather bomber jackets, combat boots, and you guessed it. Oh, for sure, we guessed uh, sunglasses. Oh no, no denim. They were denim. 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 Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. As uh, motorcycling had previously been a uh, quote-unquote gentleman's hobby, like golf, where people wore suits to ride their bikes. That if you look in like motorcycle clubs of like the twenties and thirties, it's people with like ties and waistcoats and like or, heavy. Or sweaters. they look like they're riding horses. Yeah, yeah, it's like dressage almost. Yeah, it's like some it's it's some really odd stuff. It's just like like I remember seeing in like online sheets back in the day, they'd be like motorcycle riding pants, and I'd like be like, Isn't that jeans? And then you look mm-hmm. at them and be like, No, these were made to do something. I don't know what they were for. Yeah, but they're sort of like jodper looking things. A you little know, like bit. They're sure. You imagine goofy director pants. Yeah, I have a pair from Mon Italy from a few years ago. A while they have a button at the bottom that you can make them tighter. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, they're very they're they're very uh loose up top and then they taper down. You could probably stick them into a pair of high boots. Look like look like you're riding sea biscuit. <laughs> uh so when motorcycle clothing switched over and became more of a blue collar thing, like also because, you know, post-war disposable incomes went up and the price of the technology like went down that more people could buy motorcycles, that uh, it became more of a blue collar thing. And they had these, you know, tours where they would have, you know, people would just ride around together as a way to, you know, have something to do on the weekends more or less. And this all came to a head in the quote unquote Hollister riot in 1947. Which happened um, inside a mall, correct? At a Hollister store? <laughs> yeah, just like the Brooks Brothers riot that happened uh, two stores down. Yeah, it, all over Cologne, specifically the, the kind they use in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, just over a lot, man. No, what was the Hollister riot in 1947? So the, the Hollister riot. Um, not related to the mall, was in Hollister, California, the town in Central California. There were 4,000 motorcyclists that descended on the small town in Central California, which was completely unprepared for them. So they had these like motorcycle tours where people would ride through and they'd like have lunch or something and maybe camp out and they'd go on to the next one. And this was the Gypsy Tour of 1947, which hadn't happened since before the war. And the organizers of it, the American Motorcycle Association, had we're completely unprepared for this or for 4,000 people. It was something that was just like a few hundred beforehand. But this one, the first uh, after the war was a blowout bash. It was sort of like the proto Sturgis where people showed up from like miles and miles away to party and then completely overwhelm a small town unprepared for them. And eventually the state troopers had to come in and tear gas people and like break up the, uh, the party slash riot. Um, it was a thing that like, historically, a lot of people have said that that was overblown, but the thing that cemented it in the popular consciousness is that there was a photographer from life magazine there at the time that took a bunch of pictures of drunk and unruly bikers that, um, was a new thing to scare suburbanites. Um, that is a quote from the, the article that ran in uh, life magazine in 1947. 
On the 4th of July weekend, 4,000 members of a motorcycle club roared into Hollister, California for a three-day convention. They quickly tired of ordinary motorcycle thrills and turned to more exciting stunts. Racing their vehicles down the main street and through traffic lights, they rammed into restaurants and bars, breaking furniture and mirrors. Some rested by the curb, others hardly paused. Police arrested many for drunkenness and indecent exposure, but could not restore order. Finally, after two days, the cyclists left with a brazen explanation. Quote, we like to show off. It's just a lot of fun. But Hollister's police chief took a different view, wailed he. It's just one hell of a mess. Sounds like a good time. Sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even sound like, you know, one hell of a mess isn't even like a true condemnation. Some mm -hmm. of the best times of my life left one hell of a mess. True. But uh, there's this iconic image that uh, came out of this article of a large inebriated gentleman on a Harley with uh, coveralls zipped down to expose his large belly. And he has beer bottles in both hands and a pile of empties just like surrounding the, the entire bike. He's given off like, I'm trying to think, like I don't, I don't want to dispute. He looks like he could have had a podcast if those were around <laughs> at the time. Um, but no, he's got on some, yeah, some wider pants that are tucked into some leather boots. Mm -hmm. It's honestly, dude got a fit off. He's got yeah. on a white undershirt, it looks like, that's no longer white. Like maybe just yeah. like, he's got that overshirt on. It looks like it's tucked in on one side, but it's kind of got like a Scandinavian openness to it, which is tight. His hat is cocked to the side, which is a strange move for 1947, but uh, game respect game. There is from what I can see about 16 empties by his front tire. Um, mm -hmm. it, is, it is unclear if they all belong to him. I'm not willing to rule that out. He is, he looks like a tank. There's a guy behind him that's just staring at the camera with like a look of both, uh, absolute revelry and, uh, kind of curiousness, you know, just being like, who is this unit of a human being? This just tank, um, to be clear, he probably would not have, uh, been a great political example in 2020. I'm just judging a book by its cover here, which we've been told we can do apparently again. The bike is sick, man. Big headlight. This is the image that would sort of galvanize what people thought was a biker in the American consciousness, that you have this like drunken, lewd delinquent. And the Hollister riot is ultimately what would lead to the split of the like one percenter outlaw motorcycle groups, because the uh, AMA, the American Motorcycle Association, was forced to disavow this event. Um, and a lot of other uh, motorcycle groups were like, nah, we don't want to disavow this. This was cool. This was fun. And that's how you get, you know, like the the Mongols and the Hell's Angels and uh, all those other like one percenter outlaw groups that are unaffiliated with the AMA. And the Hollister Wright would also go on to inspire the 1953 Marlon Brando film The Wild One, where he played an unruly young biker wearing jeans and a leather jacket, which we will do a uh, commentary um, talk over of that movie. It is a movie that I haven't seen in a very long time, and I'm excited to uh, to discuss. And it's a, a thing that we're going to record over while we watch it. And you can sync it up with you watching it and hear us talk about it. Because it's a very silly, like sort of like a Reefer Madness type movie, but for motorcycles. And starring a young Don Corleone. Yeah, starring the young Marlon Brando and uh, James Coburn. For all you Coburn heads out there. 
Uh, uh, denim is being very visibly co-opted by anti-materialist Marxist sexual liberation poets and rowdy drunken bikers in the immediate post-war era. And the teens loved it. Yeah, this doesn't sound like an image problem. No, the, 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 whatsoever. the teens just take this up. This is just, it's just like, it's like a, like a honing device on homing, honing, I don't know, on the, the 18 to 24 demo. It's unbelievable. Yeah, very cool stuff, which is the, the teens and their reaction to jeans is what we're going to get into the next time on part 10, the dime episode of our denim history series. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked our program, help us out by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's just, just scroll down to the bottom and click the star thing. It's, it's easy. Please, it, it helps. You can also support us by shopping on the Heddle Shop with the code BLOWOUT. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, read what is our email address. It is blowout at heddles.com. Thank you again and catch you next week. Bye-bye.